Faithful God, you have caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Help us to hear them, mark them, and inwardly digest them, that by the patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and always hold firm to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, what's one piece of information that will change the way that you act, behave, and orientate your life? If interest rates drop tomorrow, you may run out and buy a house. Uh, If school gets cancelled for the next week, you may stay up late tonight. If by some random chance we go into another lockdown, you may go and run and buy some toilet paper. Uh, I would argue that knowing the future significantly shapes our actions today. Uh, And think with me about times when your future was perhaps uncertain, whether it be the health situation, the job contracts, moving houses, let's be honest, life in general. When we don't know the future, we often feel helpless, even lost, when the future is uncertain. If only we knew how things would turn out, then we would be confident, then we would be secure. Uh, I want to share with you uh, something of a quote uh, of how uh, people in the world, outside of the church, view the future. Uh, Mark says, a, a pastor in Melbourne, writes regarding this, that the world thinks that with the right conditions and influences, humans are perfectible, and that a kind of human utopia is possible. All we need is to be educated, informed, and encouraged to progress towards this type of utopia. You see, people think uh, that we can make a man-made perfect world, that it's within our grasp. However, I'd argue that in this thinking, there is a lot of fragility, a lot of insecurity, because the bad news is, is how much education would it take? How much tolerance, how much technology, and so on, to progress to this type of man-made utopia. But the good news is is that the Bible indeed tells us that God is moving human history to a utopia, to his plan. We uh, read this in Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, provides us with a glimpse of the future. And if you have your Bibles open, direct your eyes to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. A couple of verses just before what we read out today. Verse 10 says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here is the spoiler, the glimpse of the future that we all need, that God is moving everything in heaven and on earth towards that end, to unite all things in Jesus. That is to say that all of God's purposes for the world are going to be summed up in Jesus, in him. And on that day, it is glorious. We will be his people. He will be our God. We actually need to be reminded of that as much as the unbeliever needs to hear. That is the future. That is the destination to unite all things in him. That's a glorious destination. And I reckon that actually could be a a finished sermon right there. That is a great picture of where we are going. But I'm going to talk for a lot longer, all right? Uh, I'm going to ask a a good question that I think we all should ask. If that is God's destination, if that's God's plans for for human history, then the question that we all should ask is how are we involved in God's plan? How are we involved in God's plan? And Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 tells us how we are involved in God's plan. 
The first thing it tells us, we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, that we're involved in God's plan through hearing and believing the gospel. Uh, look on with me. In verse 13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Uh, now, if you're new to things of Christianity, the gospel literally means good news, breaking news, interrupt the program, on the TV type of news. And notice in verse 13, it's a message to be heard. Important to note, the gospel is not a philosophy that draws us inside of ourselves, needing to meditate, to reach a point of Zen, to understand, to become a minimalist. No, no. The gospel is a message conveyed in words that first needs to be proclaimed, needs to be on people's lips. A message concerning our salvation. Uh, to quote Dave, who isn't here today, he spent a lot of time of his life now trying to sort of boil the gospel message down to a couple of sentences, which is actually a really helpful thing to remember. Uh, Dave's quote for what is the gospel is, the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection, and glorious ascension of King Jesus. That is this gospel concerning our salvation. Indeed, you and I are the sinners that God has saved. And this good news needs to be proclaimed. And if, we're, if we've read a little bit of the Bible, in particular the book of Acts, this is what happens in the book of Acts. After Jesus uh, is ascends from the dead, is ascended into heaven and pours out his spirit, his followers, empowered by the spirit, go out and talk about Jesus. They make Jesus known. And for example, the apostle Peter did this in Acts chapter 2. I'll read that for us. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. And so the gospel of Jesus was preached 2,000 or so years ago. And the people of Ephesus, as we have read, heard of Jesus and believed in him. If we continue in verse 13, it says, uh, I'll read the first part again, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Though the people of Ephesus had not met Jesus face to face, they had heard about Jesus, they had heard the words, the words of truth, and had come to believe in him. Now I want to slow down on the word belief. Uh, belief is a great word in the Bible. Uh, however, today, uh, the words belief, believed, believer is a little bit muddled, a little bit muddied by our cultural understanding of it. Uh, it's very generalized now. You may have heard the words, I'm a believer, quite often said outside of church services. Uh, people use such words for belief in the supernatural, in irrational things, even for superstitious things. The saying, I'm a believer, isn't just the great lines from a Smash Mouth song and a great movie of mine, Shrek. But the words, I'm a believer, is no longer just associated to the things of the true and living God. And sometimes can have somewhat of a hocus-pocus dimension to it. Uh, but that's not what the Bible understands about the word belief. Uh, Philip Jensen, a great Bible teacher, says, If we want to communicate the biblical truth to our neighbours... We need to change our vocabulary. Belief sometimes needs to be replaced with trust, depend, 
and rely. That is what the word belief means. We trust, we depend, and we rely in, on Jesus. Uh, and we, in our lives, trust and depend on a lot of things. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but you are trusting in something right now. The chair that you are seated on. And if you've looked at this chair closely, it perhaps is not worthy of our trust. Uh, I put those chairs out earlier and they were falling over. Jude did a good job, but we couldn't help it. And uh, the, the great thing, though, about a trusting relationship is it doesn't matter about the magnitude of your faith. Uh, the magnitude of my trust in that chair is not great, but it's the object of that faith that actually holds us up. It's not the little faith that saves me from falling down in that chair, but it's the integrity of that chair. And while trusting in the chair might be a bit comically, we do trust in a lot of things in our life. We trust in people. We trust in jobs. We trust in bank accounts. We trust in our future aspirations to save us. And there's all kinds of things that we trust. However, I think human experience, our own lives, tells us that these things often let us down. And sadly, too often, we fail to trust God. We fail to trust his word as trustworthy, rather trusting in ourselves, sinning against God. And we all do need to repent of that and trust in him alone. Because friends, Jesus, the object of our trust, is trustworthy. Indeed, the Apostle Paul writes another letter to his, his friend, his uh, uh, apprentice, Timothy, saying in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. By way of application, have you, have you heard the word of truth and put your trust in Jesus? Uh, if you've got questions about what it looks like to trust in Jesus, I would love to have a conversation with you, as would many others. But I'm aware in the uh, early, st early st stages of a church plant, there are many people here already trusting in Jesus. And our primary aim for application of this text is evangelism. Uh, our primary aim is to uh, tell people about Jesus. And we don't want people just to approve our message, but we want people to believe, to trust in Jesus. You see, today's post-Christian culture suggests that the thing that we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. People regret or reject the idea that they need saving. But Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, it tells us that this gospel is the gospel concerning salvation. The bad news, you, we are trying to save ourselves, but we can't. You want to be free, but you are not. The deep satisfaction that our friends, family, neighbours, city are looking for can't be found in this world. We need saving. The good news, verse 13, God offers salvation from this world in Jesus. And as Tara shared uh, a moment ago, uh, Christ our refuge has, has a mission, and we also have a vision. Uh, this vision is, quote, our dream is to be a city of refuge within the city of Brisbane, where many people have found their refuge, security, and hope in Christ. And key to reaching that vision is through evangelism. Uh, I must admit, I've been guilty in the past to leaving evangelism up to Dave Myers, who isn't here. Perhaps you're the same with me. He's a great evangelist. But, um, uh, but Dave, I hate to break it to you, isn't going to evangelize Christ our refuge into existence. 
But under God, we, the church, are going to evangelize Christ our refuge into existence. As our primary aim is to proclaim Jesus, the word of truth. So how are we involved in God's plan? Well, first, it's by hearing and believing the gospel. The second way uh, we are involved in God's plan, as we continue to look into this text, is that we are sealed by the Spirit. Let's pick it up. Uh, Second half of verse 13, it says, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Uh, Now, by by way of context, a seal here in the Roman culture of the first century represented someone's ownership and their constant protection, often branded on cattle. But God's seal of permanent ownership and constant protection for Christians isn't a, a brand on the outside or a tattoo, but it's actually God's own spirit, the Holy Spirit. That is what marks out Christians. God gives his spirit. Uh, it's important to note, as we, as we read, the spirit is promised. And we see in the Bible that Jesus himself promises to send his spirit in John chapter 14. But likewise, in the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 36, it says, I will, sprinkle, <clears throat> sorry, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And if you keep reading Ezekiel chapter 36, there's a constant refrain of I will, I will, I will, I will. God is promising to do this. God promises to give the spirit and God fulfills his promise. And as we hear about fulfilling the promise of the Spirit, your mind perhaps might jump to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when God, when Jesus pours out his Spirit onto his followers, which is remarkable. But I actually think Ephesians chapter 1 is all the more remarkable, because if, you, if you're familiar with the city of Ephesus, they're not just Jews in Ephesus, but they're actually Gentiles, people that at once were outside the family of God, not, Jew, not Jewish by birth. So it's actually remarkable in Ephesians chapter 1 that we've read that through no effort of their own, God has taken these Gentile Christians, baptizing them into his family by giving them the promised spirit. And it was true of the first century Jewish and Christian Gentiles, but it's also true of the 21st century, that through hearing and believing the gospel and being sealed by the Spirit. And it's not as if we need a grasp to earn the Spirit, but as we've read here, God gives His Spirit to His believers. We are God's property. Yeah, if you were here with us last week, as I was writing this uh, talk, I couldn't help but be reminded by, by Claire's words last week as she shared uh, at work. It's not about making known who you are, but whose you are. There were beautiful words in the interview. And this is a reminder here. We are God's. He has taken us. He has provided us with his seal, the spirit of constant protection, which is amazing. And the same spirit who shows that we are gods is also a guarantee, as we read there, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, guarantee here encompasses a first installment, the deposit, 
the down payment, the pledge, and it pays a part of the purchase price, validating the contract. Uh, your minds might jump to a guarantee on a home deposit. It's the deposit, it's the first installment. So it is with the Holy Spirit. In God giving us the Spirit, God is promising a final destination to us, an inheritance to us. And this Spirit right now, as we've heard the word of truth and received the Spirit, is actually a foretaste of our destination. Uh, Richard Kogan writes that knowing that we have the Spirit helps us avoid two common errors. First, we'll avoid that the thinking that our joy with God is only for the future. We can already enjoy something of heaven now in a personal intimacy with God that is enabled through the Spirit. But second, we'll also avoid thinking that our current experience is all there is, when it is actually only the deposit, the taste of what is to come. So how are we involved in God's plan? Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, it tells us, by hearing and believing the gospel and being sealed, secured by the Spirit. So I have a question for us all to reflect on. Have you come to a point in your life when you are assured, where you know you are going to heaven? Have you come to that point where you know you are going to heaven? Yes? Maybe? I think so. On what basis do you answer that question? I'm going to heaven because dot, 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 fill in the blank. Uh, I want to share with you uh, an example from history where that question of am I going to heaven was on the lips of many. Uh, around the 1500s, there was an event called the Protestant Reformation where the Protestant churches sort of broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. And I want to comment briefly on the word assurance in the Catholic Church at that time. You see, the Roman Catholic Church around 500 years ago exacerbated people's insecurities about whether or not they were truly going to heaven. And they designed a type of pastoral care to make people uncertain about their salvation and therefore more dependent on intercessions from the church, like confession, purgatory, donations, and so on. Uh, therefore, people would practice church traditions in order to, to grasp onto any security possible, to try and have any type of security that they can, that they're going to heaven. Uh, in so doing, what, that, what took place is that people elevated tradition above the authority of the Bible concerning salvation. Uh, ultimately, the people in the pews were left insecure about their salvation. Uh, John Calvin, one of the great Protestant reformers, they wrote regard, he wrote regarding the people in the pews, those people will always doubt whether he or she actually has a merciful God. They will always be troubled and always tremble. And it's easy to look back into history, isn't it, to see how they got it wrong, perhaps. But likewise, I want to bring this closer to home. Today, many Protestant churches have also elevated not so much tradition over the authority of the Bible, but personal experience. Now, there's nothing wrong with our personal experiences in the Christian life. We should celebrate our experiences, but we should be wise not to lift our personal experience above the Word of God. Just as it is wrong to elevate the church tradition above, it is also wrong to elevate experience above the authority of the Word of God on our salvation. You see, you don't need 
a second baptism by the Holy Spirit. You don't need to feel goosebumps every time we sing. You just need to hear and believe in Jesus. John Stott, a famous Christian author who is now with the Lord, he writes this regarding this example. The way to be sure is not to feel sure. Most young Christians at the beginning of their Christian life may make this mistake. One day they feel close to God. The next day they feel estranged from God, far away. They imagine that their feelings accurately reflect their spiritual condition and so are uncertain. The basis of our knowledge that we are in a right relationship with God is not our feelings, but the fact that he says we are. The test that we should apply to ourselves is, is objective rather than subjective. We are to look up and out and away to God and his word. But where shall we find God's word to assure us that we are his? The Bible. That is our authority in salvation. So that question that I asked a moment ago, have you come to a point in your life where you know that you are going to heaven? The wonderful news of Ephesians chapter 1 is that if you have heard the word of truth and put your trust, dependence, reliance in Jesus, you can stand here, sit here with absolute certainty. Yes, I am. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. Our assurance for salvation, for forgiveness, for the future is God's words. Uh, so to conclude, to conclude today, I started off uh, my talk with that question. What's one piece of information that will change the way that you live tomorrow? And I hope that you've heard today that if you've heard and believed in the gospel, your future is tied up is secure, is guaranteed in God's plans for the universe. By way of application, how does this change our life tomorrow? This means, I think, that we no longer need to live as if this world is all there is. But we can actually live with a, with a loosened grip on the things of this world as we live for Christ now. This means that we can turn away from trusting in the wrong things, trusting in the created things, to turn and trust in the living God. This means that even though we may be wearied by the changes and chances of this fleeting world, we can be confident in the future. Jaya Packer writes, There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they are known by God and that this relationship guarantees God's favour to them in life, through death and forever. How does this change the way you live today, tomorrow? To close, as a church at Christ Our Refuge, we've actually spent a lot of time uh, thinking about the mission, as Tara said, uh, to know Christ, love the church and serve the city. We've thought about the vision, which I've shared earlier, but we've also spent a lot of time thinking about who do we want to be, what do we want to look like as we go about our mission, as we aim for our vision. And we've summarized the, this characteristics into the words, we are gospel people. And one of the marks of a gospel person is to have gospel confidence. Ephesians chapter 1 offers us gospel confidence. And what does gospel confidence mean? Our confidence is not in our own abilities, 
or strategies, but in a sovereign God who works powerfully in his people through his spirit, through the gospel. We can be confident because we have heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, believed in him and have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs to eternal life. In your mercy, you have washed us from our sins and have made us clean in your sight. Thank you that through hearing and believing the gospel, our future is secure in Jesus. Help us to have gospel confidence that changes the way we live and equip us for every good work. Help us to continue to grow as members of Christ in whom alone our salvation is found. Amen.